to the scriptures first in Ezekiel's prophecy, chapter 40. We're reading verses 1 through 5. We're really only reading a part. This is a, a long and a lengthy vision, an account of a vision to Ezekiel um, concerning uh, the measurement of the temple. Uh, so it's quite an interesting uh, vision. We'll only read the first five verses as we try to see the correlation between this vision and what we're dealing with in the book of Revelation this morning. Ezekiel chapter 40, verse 1, says God's inspired and inerrant word. In the 25th year of our exile, at the beginning of the year, in the 10th of the month, on the 14th year after the city was taken, on that same day the hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me there. In visions of God, he brought me into the land of Israel, and he set me on a very high mountain, and on it to the south there was a structure like a city. So he brought me there, and behold, there was a man whose appearance was like the appearance of bronze with a line of flax and a measuring rod in his hand, and he was standing in the gateway. The man said to me, Son of man, see with your eyes, hear with your ears, and give attention to all that I am going to show you. For you have been brought here in order to, to show it to you. Declare to the house of Israel all that you see. And behold, there was a wall, and outside of the temple all around, uh, rather a wall on the outside of the temple all around, and in the man's hand was a measuring rod of six cubits, each of which was a cubit and a handbreadth. So he measured the thickness of the wall, one rod, and the height, one rod. Revelation uh, chapter 17, we're reading verses 1 through 3. Again, we're reading this section in Revelation to see its connection to the section that we're dealing with in Revelation chapter 1 this morning. Revelation 17, verses 1 through 3. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and spoke with me, saying, Come here, and I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth committed acts of immorality, and those who dwell on the earth were made drunk with the wine of her immorality. And he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast full of blasphemous names, having the seven heads and having seven heads and ten horns. Verse 4, the woman was clothed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a cup full of abominations and of the unclean things of her immorality. And now... Uh, Revelation 21, verses 9 through 14, which is our text today. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and spoke with me, saying, Come here, and I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city of Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God having the glory of God. Her brilliance was like a very costly stone, as a stone of crystal clear 
jasper. It had a great and high wall and uh, with 12 gates, and at the gates, 12 angels, and names were written on them, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel. There were three gates on the east, and three gates on the north, and three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. And the wall of the city had 12 foundation stones, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God abides forever. Amen. We give thanks to you, O Lord, for your goodness towards us in giving us your word, this revelation of your holy character, uh, the way that you have throughout the ages of the church uh, given us uh, this uh, revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, your only begotten Son, the one you've sent, uh, given as a gift that all who believe in him should, should not perish but have everlasting life. We uh, come to your word, O Lord, and we look to you and to the Spirit of Christ as we seek to understand it. You know, we uh, help, help us, O Lord, to wade through uh, the deep symbols of this book and to see the, the underlying truth that lies beneath them by the help of your Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 <clears throat> we, I hope that you saw, as we read in chapter 17, verses 1 through 4, and then as we read uh, from our text, uh, had we gone on there in Revelation 21, you'd, seen, you'd have seen further uh, parallels between that uh, 17th chapter. Um, the, you, you can see that the, the wording of chapter 21, verses 9 and 10, is almost identical to Revelation 7, verses 1 and 3, which introduces Babylon, the great harlot, symbolizing apostate Israel, also symbolized, remember, by the land beast and the false prophet here in the book of Revelation. Uh, both the great harlot and the new Jerusalem uh, are introduced by one of the seven angels who had one of the seven bowls full of the seven plagues that were poured out upon apostate Israel uh, here in the vision to John uh, who uh, the angel summons John with the words, Come here and I will show you. Revelation 17, 1, 21, verse 9, and carries John away in the spirit to a lookout point. Chapter 17, verse 3, chapter 21, uh, verse 10. This is very Ezekiel esque. Uh, uh, the way God dealt with uh, Ezekiel in his uh, prophecies, he lifted him up by the spirit and carried him away to another place. That's what's going on in our text. Both cities, uh, Babylon and the New Jerusalem, are adorned with gold, precious stones, and pearls. Chapter 17, verse 4, 21, verses 18 to 21. The harlot's adornment in 17:4 with those with gold and precious stones and, and pearls represents her economic collusion with the Roman Empire and the nations that were in league with Rome. 
who are persecuting Christians in the first century and seducing them to compromise their faith. The bride's adornment, on the other hand, in our text and in what follows in Revelation 21, represents her faithful works or her vindicated condition as a result of those faithful works. And then at the conclusion of these visions, Revelation 17 and 21, if we'd read on, uh, we would see that the angel affirms the truthfulness of the divine words that he has brought, both in Revelation uh, 19, 9, and in 22, verse 6. These words are the faithful and true, uh, are faithful and true, and the, the, the Lord, the God of the prophets, the spirits of the prophets has sent his angel to show you. And then at the end of both visions, both the end of uh, the vision of the great harlot, uh, there in chapter 19 and here in uh, Revelation 22, John bows down before the angel and worships him and is rebuked for worshiping him. So we're clearly supposed to see that this is a vision that contrasts the great harlot Babylon, which is a symbol of apostate Israel, the counterfeit bride, and the genuine bride of Christ that's being revealed here in Revelation chapter 21. The similarities magnify the differences between these two, the great harlot, the false bride, and the Lamb's true bride. Whereas John uh, was carried away to the wilderness to see the great harlot, here in our text in verse 10, he's taken to a, a great high mountain, just as Ezekiel was taken to a very high mountain in the section uh, that we read. Uh, the Old Testament background for this vision, as we have seen so often through our exposition of of Revelation, there's, uh, there's often an Old Testament anchor uh, that John is using. He's using his knowledge of, of the Scriptures, and he's appropriating these Old Testament prophecies uh, in order to explain to us and give us a spiritual understanding of the symbols that he's using. And the Old Testament symbols uh, aid us uh, in understanding uh, the, the book of Revelation. The vision of, uh, that we're considering today in verses 9 through 14 and in what follows, John is shown the genuine bride, uh, God's true people, in contrast to the counterfeit bride, apostate Israel uh, of the first century. And the bride appears as the holy city of Jerusalem. Yet the details of its description here in chapter 21, its massive dimensions, its building materials, the names on its gates and its foundations show that the city symbolizes something else as the title, the bride, the wife of the lamb in 21 verse 9 
and the bride adorned for her husband in 21 verse 2 has led us to expect. The bride represents not a literal place, not a literal city of Jerusalem, but the redeemed of God's faithful community. This isn't a picture of a millennial city on earth. This isn't even a picture of heaven. The city is the bride, the wife of the Lamb. She's the church triumphant, perfected, glorified church of Jesus Christ. In this passage, we're not merely looking it through a window into a world to come, but into a kind of mirror. As members of Christ's body, the church, we see ourselves as we are now in principle and as we shall be in our perfected state in heaven. We're not only spectators of this vision together with John, but we're also the spectacle itself. We're not merely going to the celestial city. We are the celestial city. We who believe, together with all the redeemed of the Lord of all ages, are represented here. There's a literal new cosmos, a new heaven, and a new earth. The earlier section of Revelation 21 has shown to us. But the point of this vision is to focus on the glorified saints, the church at the center of this new order, at the center of the new creation. The bride, the new Jerusalem, symbolizes the church of Jesus Christ in its perfected state in the new heaven and the new earth. Here, God shows us that God's, that his glorious presence beautifies the church and establishes her inviolability in a new creation. God's glorious presence beautifies the church and establishes her inviolability in the new creation. We're going to look at three things here, the church's origin, the church's beauty, and the church's inviolability. Children, as we're looking at the church's origin, we're considering where the church comes from. As we're thinking about the church's beauty, we're asking the question, how is the church made beauty a beautiful? And as we're considering her inviolability, uh, we're considering how the church is kept safe uh, from all harm, protected from all of her enemies. So in the first place, where does the church come from? The church's origin, 
Verses 2 and 10 tell us that the new Jerusalem comes down from heaven. This vision to John isn't intended to give us an image of a floating city, a city suspended in space coming down from the heavens, floating down out of uh, the heavens. It's not intended to evoke some vision of a, a massive city. It symbolizes the city's divine origin. This city is from God. The new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven. The Christian church isn't a man-made institution. It's not a consequence of combined sociological, economic, or other human factors. The church comes from God. It comes down out of heaven. Every Christian is from heaven in the sense of supernatural origin. Uh, the, the, the origin of our salvation in particular. Uh, the children of God, John writes in chapter 1 and verse 13 of his gospel, were born not of blood, nor the will of man, nor the, uh, uh, the will of flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. Uh, they were born of God. Jesus, you remember, said later, uh, John records this in his gospel, chapter 3, he said to Nicodemus the Pharisee, that unless one is born of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. The new birth is heavenly through the work of the Spirit. Jesus is saying to this ruler of the Jews, you can't uh, merely, it's not enough merely to be born of the flesh. You must be born from above. The new Jerusalem comes down from heaven above. Now in our text, the theme of God's presence with his people is developed in chapter 1, uh, in verses 1 to 3, 2 and 3 rather, where the New Jerusalem is uh, really uh, mentioned in passing. And here uh, in chapter 9 and through the rest of uh, chapter 21, uh, it's developed more Fully, and that uh, there in, in in the earlier verses here, uh, uh, we read, "Behold, the tabernacle of God is is among men, and He will dwell among them, and they shall be His people, and God Himself will be among them." And that's further developed here uh, in. Our text, as we're told in verse 11, that this church that comes down out of heaven has the glory of God, that it possesses the glory of God. And uh, if you remember uh, your Old Testament, glory is so often uh, depicted, God's glory is so often depicted in terms of light, uh, in terms of brilliance. And uh, that is what we see here. God's presence uh, isn't limited to the temple structure uh, with God's people outside the structure, but God's 
people themselves will be both the city and the temple in which God's presence resides, as in verses 2 and 3 here in chapter 21, as well as in 12 through 14. The city is the temple of God. Later in 21-22, we're told that God and the Lamb are the temple, that uh, God and the Lamb, the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the New Jerusalem's temple. And here we're told that Jerusalem is God's temple. Uh, We've got this uh, dynamic of that Jesus introduced us to, and again in John's gospel, uh, of abiding in Christ. John chapter 15, abide in me and I in you. We're the temple. God abides in us. He's our temple. We abide in him. Jesus is our temple. The lamb is our temple. He abides in us. We abide in him. God's people, uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5. Again, another reference to the temple. We're living stones. We're being built into a dwelling place of God by the Spirit. Ephesians 2, verse 22 says, Revelation 21 shows the dwelling place of God coming down out of heaven. The church is a holy city, not only in the sense of purity because of its divine origin, but in the sense of being set apart as God's holy dwelling place. Psalm 87.2 says, The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all other dwelling places of Jacob. The Lord loved Jerusalem because his people were there and his temple was there where he promised to dwell among them. That's where he'd chosen to make his glory known in connection with the temple in Jerusalem. John Newton expresses this Beautifully in his hymn, glorious things of thee are spoken, Zion, city of our God. He whose word cannot be broken formed them for his own abode. Psalm 87, in connection with Revelation 21, shows us how much God loves his people, the church of Jesus Christ. It tells us something. Uh, these passages tell us something about God's, uh, where God sets his affections, where his love uh, resides. He's set his love uh, on us, even as he set his love on uh, the people of Israel of old. Deuteronomy 7, uh, he didn't choose them because... Uh, They were greater in number uh, than all the nations around them, but he chose to set his love upon them. God loves his people, the church. 
He chooses to dwell with his people, the church. And he has this abiding affection. Uh, We know something of affection in this life. We know something of this life. But we know nothing of the love of God, the intensity, the brilliance of God's love for his people. And Revelation is trying to stretch our minds to see just how much God loves the church of Jesus Christ. Psalm 87.5 says that Zion and those born of, of, of Zion and, and those born in her, it will be said, the Most High will establish her. And the Lord Jesus Christ, you remember in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 18 said, I will build my church. God is building his church. It's the center of his affections. It's the center of Christ's church, of Christ's building efforts here on earth. It will be the center of attention in the new heaven and the new earth. The center of God's attention. And the one who dwells in the new Jerusalem, in the bride of Jesus Christ, from her vantage point, of course, the one who is their temple will be their center of attention. God is building his church. He's establishing the new Jerusalem, not only as the depository for his witness, uh, for the witness of Christ here on earth, but as an eternal dwelling place from God, which comes down out of heaven. The origin of the church, the glory of God shining in the New Testament, uh, the New Jerusalem, also accounts for Secondly, the church's beauty. Brilliant light is the first thing that imprints itself on John's sight in this uh, vision of the New Jerusalem. Her brilliance, verse 11, was like a very costly stone, a stone of crystal clear jasper. God is, uh, John rather, is, is struggling to find Uh, an image, uh, a way, an analogy by which he can communicate the glory of God shining in its brilliance in the church. And so he compares the New Jerusalem to the brilliance or light or of a luminary or star. Same word is used in the Greek Old Testament in Daniel Chapter 12 and verse 3, where God's people shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven who turn, uh, to turn many into righteousness like the stars forever and ever. It's also used of, uh, by Paul when he speaks of God's people shining like stars or lights as they hold for, forth the word of God to an unbelieving people. Philippians chapter 2 verse 15. And when John attempts to describe 
uh, the beauty and the, the radiance of God's glory shining in his people, the new Jerusalem, the closest thing that he can come to on earth is to refer to it as a radiant, precious stone. Jasper, I don't think, is common to us, but I think it was more so to uh, the first century people of God and uh, people prior to God's people prior to uh, the first century uh, century, uh, church as well. Jasper, uh, as it appears, uh, if we were to discover it in nature, is uh, it might be yellow, it might be red, it might be green, and on rare occasions it's blue. But it's opaque. And the jasper that John describes here is not opaque, it's crystal clear. So John is straining the limits of his hearers' experience uh, and their imaginations to communicate the beauty of the New Jerusalem, the church of Jesus Christ that lies beyond the capacity of the first earth. Light will pervade his description here in Revelation 21 as we go on in verses 23 to 26 and 22:5, as well as uh, describing the loveliness of other precious stones in 21, 18 through 21, and the transparency of, of, of crystal in chapter 21, verses 18 and 21. Uh, the radiance that John saw in a, a previous vision here in Revelation in chapter 4, emanating from God's throne, where his glory appeared like jasper and Sardis now permeates the bride of Christ, the wife of the Lamb, the holy city coming down out of heaven. The glory of the Lord indwells his people and floods his new community with the beauty of his holiness. That glory isn't always clear to us here. On earth, when we, when we try to see the church as John sees it in his vision, uh, as it will one day be in the glory of the new heaven and the new earth, and as God sees it through Christ, even now, we mainly see the dark side of the church with its theological confu- confusion and sinful inconsistencies, and in many cases pitifully weak efforts in evangelism and discipleship and in worship. But we need to see the church of Jesus Christ as John sees it, and we need to see the church of Jesus Christ as God sees it. In other words, we need to see ourselves in this mirror image that John is presenting to us, even now as the church of Jesus Christ is perfected by his mediatorial work and to see it as beautiful, to see it as Psalm 87 presents uh, Jerusalem, the church of the Lord 
Jesus Christ. We need to let Revelation stretch the limits of our experience to see the new Jerusalem as it is now through Christ and as it will be in the glory of the new heaven and the new earth. We've seen the church's origin. We've seen the church's beauty. We need to see finally the church's inviolability. Next, John describes the new Jerusalem, and he describes it in physical terms. Once again, uh, he describes it as having a great and high wall and its 12 gates, three on each of its four sides, verses 12 and 13. At each gate, in John, this vision to John, there's an angel standing at uh, the 12 gates, a reminder of the cherubim with the, the flaming sword who guarded the Garden of Eden, Genesis 3, 34. Now, of course, the church in the new heaven and the new earth doesn't need a wall around it. And it doesn't need angels guarding the gates because it doesn't need defending. In verse 25, in fact, we're told that all of the gates of the city are left open. There's no need to shut the gates because there's no longer any danger in the new Jerusalem. All the enemies of this city have been cast into the lake of fire. They've been destroyed. There's no night in this city. There's nothing to be afraid of anymore. There are no tears. There's no pain. There's no mourning. There's no crying. The first things have passed away. So why does the new Jerusalem, as it appears to John in this vision, have this massive wall, as we're going to go on to see the description of this city later here in chapter 21, why does it have this massive wall and angels at each one of the gates? The wall represents the church's inviolability. The angels are a symbol of its complete security. It reminds us of the difference between paradise lost and paradise renewed. It contrasts the first creation and the new creation. In the first creation, Adam was on probation. There's always the possibility that he would fall. But if you're united to Christ by faith, there's no possibility whatsoever that you will be separated from him. Surely John Newton was thinking of Psalm 87 in connection with Revelation 21 when he penned that great hymn, Glorious Things of Thee, are spoken and went on to write, On the rock of ages founded, what can shake thy sure repose with salvation's walls surrounded 
thou mayst smile at all thy foes. We are better off than Adam as he was in the garden if we are in the Lord Jesus Christ. We are safer than Adam was in paradise, in the garden of God, thanks to the second Adam, Jesus Christ. We are surrounded by a great and high impenetrable wall with angels at the gates so that no serpent can ever come slithering into the new heaven and into the new earth. Inscribed on the twelve gates are the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel, verse 7. And in addition to that, the wall of the city, verse 14, had twelve foundation stones, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. The number 24, the sum of the twelve tribes and the twelve apostles has occurred in the scene of the 24 elders. It's occurred many times, but it first occurred in chapter 4, verses 2 to 3, when the 24 elders appeared. And in both scenes, the glory of God shines like jasper. Chapter 4, verse 3, chapter 21 verse 11, suggesting that the 24 elders of chapter 4, as well as the 12 tribes and the 12 apostles of 21, 11 to 14, represent the sum of God's people, both old and new covenants, people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation gathered together into the new covenant church, the new Jerusalem. It comprehends both the old and new, the new Jerusalem, the walls that are surrounding new Jerusalem comprehends both old covenant believers and new covenant believers. As the historic church has always recognized, there's only one way of salvation and only one covenant of grace. The fact that it operated under various administrations in the old and new doesn't affect the essential unity of the one people of God throughout the whole, uh, the ages of uh, the church. The whole covenant community, old and new, forms the new Jerusalem, a spiritual temple in which God's presence dwells. It's noteworthy that in verse 14, the 12 apostles are part of the foundation, whereas the 12 tribes of Israel are part of the gates in the wall on the foundation. We might expect the opposite since Israel preceded the church in redemptive history. But the reversal here highlights the fact that the fulfillment of the promises to Israel had finally come in Jesus Christ. Christ.
Christ to, together with the apostolic witness to his fulfilling work, forms the foundation of the new temple. Using the same temple metaphor, Paul identifies the apostles and prophets in the early church as the foundation on which, uh, of which Jesus is the chief cornerstone, Ephesians 2, verse 20. And so John sees the twelve apostles as foundational for the city, which, it, as it turns out, is a temple uh, that is filled with God's glory from top to bottom. Well, we began by showing that the new Jerusalem, the true bride of Christ, the church, is introduced in these verses in contrast to the great harlot Babylon, the counterfeit bride, apostate Israel. The new Jerusalem is presented here as the fulfillment of uh, Ezekiel's vision of the new temple in Ezekiel chapter 40. And the primary characteristic of the temple, city temple here in Revelation is the presence of God's glory, which is an intensification of God's glorious presence in Israel's old temple. The very same Old Testament prophecies of the temple glorified, alluded to in uh, Revelation 21, verse 3, are also appealed to by the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 2 and verse 16 in supporting the notion that the church of Jesus Christ is the temple of God. And that brings us to the practical aspect of this text. We've already seen some very practical aspects, in case you hadn't noticed, as we worked our way through this text. Now, the, the love that God has for the church, the beauty and the glory of the church shining as God's glory on earth, uh, and many other things that we find represented in these symbols. But there's a very practical aspect here as we think about this about the church of Jesus Christ as a fulfillment of the prophecies, the Old Testament prophecies that are alluded to, to here in Revelation 21, uh, as we think of the church, church of Jesus Christ as the temple of God and that through which God's glory shines. And that practical implication comes into, into, in, into the picture when we think about what the priests did in the Old Covenant. They were to keep the temple undefiled. Uh, their work as priests, as holy priests, was to keep the temple undefiled. And that has significant implications as we look to the, the practical conclusion that, that Paul draws from the church being God's temple, found in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 1, which reads, Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of 
flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. So we're being shown here in, in, in this revelation to John that just as priests in the Old Testament were to keep the old temple clean from defilement, now believers who are temples themselves of the Holy Spirit and part of the temple, with this, which is the church of Jesus Christ, are to keep themselves pure and clean from sinful defilement. And to the degree that they do this, to the degree that believers obey God and pursue holiness, and to the degree that the church of Jesus Christ keeps the commandments of God and keeps her, God's ordinances pure in terms of its doctrine and its worship, the glory of God shines in the church now, and the glory of God shines in believers now, in you and in me. And that's motivation. It's motivation for every believer to pursue holiness. John tells us, John says, First uh, John 3, little children, it has not yet appeared what we are. But when we see him, that is, when we see Christ, we shall know him just as he is, and we shall be like him. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. You, as you're reading your Bible this year, as I hope you are, reading through the Bible, not just bits and pieces, but through the whole, however long that takes you, whether it takes you uh, one year or two or three or four or five as you're reading these passages that deal with the second coming of Jesus Christ, you pay close attention to what the driving motivational factor is in these sections of, of Scripture that speak of the second coming of Christ. And you'll find that it's holiness, it's purity. It's sanctification. It's preparing ourselves to meet the Lord. Preparing us ourselves for that day when we see him just as he is. And we are like him. We shall be like him, for we shall see him just as he is, John says. And in the same sense, John is showing us that as the new Jerusalem, the bride of Christ, the church of Jesus Christ, is the temple. And as Paul emphasizes in his teaching that individual believers are the temple, we are to be purifying ourselves. We're to be seeking holiness, uh, seeking by the grace of God, of course, but striving for holiness now. Because we are the temple of God now, 
as individual believers and as the church. And we are part and parcel of the glorious new Jerusalem in the new creation, the new heaven, the new earth, which is the center, the focal point in this revelation to John in the new creation. And that means, dear people of God, dear Christians, we ought to be striving for holiness, striving to put to death the sins of the flesh, that we might become what we are already in the eyes of our God through the work of our Lord Jesus Christ, the temple, the new Jerusalem, the church of Jesus Christ, the glory of God shining in her. Let's pray. Do expand our understanding, O Lord. Stretch our minds to see what the vision to John is showing to, was showing to him and, and uh, in turn is showing to us as your people, as the new Jerusalem, as the city of God, as the bride of Christ. What we are now in principle and what we shall be in glory. Help us, O Lord, and help us then to do what we're called to do, to put away sin. We so often plagues us, Lord, in this life. Our besetting sins, uh, the sins that we continually find ourselves fighting against, and uh, the the sins that we thought um, we had defeated by your grace, and and then they come creeping back in because we let our guard down. Oh, Lord, help us and show us the, the... the strength of your grace and enable us by the power that works in us uh, through the Holy Spirit, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, to put our sin to death, uh, that you might shine in us more beautifully as individual Christians. You might uh, shine uh, through us uh, more beautifully uh, as the, the collective body of Jesus Christ that we might bring you glory, O Lord, here on earth. And we anticipate uh, the coming day in which we will be perfected in all glory and protected from all our enemies, including ourselves uh, and our own sin. And we ask, O Lord, that until then you'd continue to protect us and keep us as we, the celestial city, Make our way to the celestial city of heaven. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Our concluding hymn is number 345. Let's stand together as we sing.